Verse 18. After Ehud brought the tribute payment, he dismissed the people who had carried it. But he went back once he reached the carved images at Gilgal. He said to Eglon, I have a secret message for you. So he brings a tribute. He goes out with everybody. And the idea is that if he begins to leave with everybody, then the soldiers will also reduce their ranks around Eglon. Because when the foreign nation is there, the soldiers are going to be a greater presence. But when the foreign nation leaves, the soldiers will leave as well. So Ehud goes, and then he turns around to go back, because now the soldiers are more sparse, and he has a better chance of doing what he wants to do without being nosed, which means he knows that's what's going to happen. Now it says when he reached the idols, he turned around and went back. Idols, you often place idols in very holy places and on your borders. Because the idols stood at your borders to guard your borders. So what it's saying is he came right to the border before he entered Israelite territory and he turned around and went back. So he did it right before the border check when he was going to have to show his passport and visa and not have to go through that mess of like, oh my gosh, I forgot my keys. I got to go back through that all again. Right when he reaches that, he goes back. This is emphasizing something that one, he's on the outskirts. But two, he's still in enemy territory. In the ancient world, the gods can only control the land that they control. They can only have power in the land that they control. So if Ehud is going to do something amazing in Moabite territory, that's another way of God's way of showing that he's not limited by regions. Though that point has been made very clear all throughout the First Testament so far, obviously Israel needs to be retaught that lesson because of worshiping other gods. So he decides to go back because he's going to have a secret message from Eglon, or for Eglon from God. Now there's three rooms. The first room is the outer room. So think of this like the lobby waiting. And then you go into the next room, and that's the room where Eglon would sit there and present himself before the public, and they pay their tribute and that kind of stuff. And then there's a room on the other side that called the breezeway. And the breezeway is more likely Eglon's private chambers. Not exactly his bedroom, more like his bedrooms, because he is a king. All of these rooms put together are still smaller than like one floor of your house. (laughs) So we're not talking about huge rooms here. Ehud goes into the outer lobby, and then he would walk into the presentation room where the guards were, Eglon's sitting there. He presents his tribute, and then he turns around, and he leaves that room and goes back out into the lobby and leaves and goes to the border, turns around, goes back through the lobby and into the the presentation room again. Now things have settled down, and he says he has a secret message for Eglon from God. Now, it wasn't uncommon that even though he does not worship Yahweh, he still would want to know every word from any god that he could get. Because in the ancient world, when you worship multiple gods, you want to never reject any god who wants to speak to you because you can get everything that you can get to get along. He's really like, ooh, 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 ooh. Secret message from God means this. Ehud has learned something about something, and he realized that this will give him a private audience. And he knows Eglon well enough that Eglon is not going to want other people to hear it Because in the ancient world, if you got messages from gods, that gave you the upper hand over somebody else. 
And the gods didn't speak to you because they liked you. They speak to you because they favored you in some way. And if somebody else hears that message, that might give them what they need. And maybe the next thing it leads them to is them having the victory instead of you. And people like you better than them. And they'll get promoted instead of you. Like David and Saul and their little thing going on. Or they might assassinate you with that. All information is guarded. So think of like Pentagon with highly encrypted information. They don't share that with the media because if other people figure it out, all your plans go down the drain. And so he's going to send everybody away. The fact that Eglon sends everybody away brings Ehud into the breezeway, that inner chamber that only Eglon would ever usually probably go to, his closest attendance, and closes the doors with the enemy in the room with him and no soldiers means he's gotten cocky. When people become very powerful and they're used to oppressing people for a very long time, they tend to get cocky. And when people get cocky, they tend to relax their security because they think, oh, that can never happen to us, like 9-11. When 9-11 happened, we watched those guys for months. We followed them to airports where they learned how to fly planes. We watched them go other places. And Osama bin Laden actually sent us a letter telling us that on September 11th, he was going to attack us in advance of the attack. And there's a deep, well, we talked about this in Islam. There's a reason why he picked September 11th. But he actually sent us a letter letter telling us, I'm going to attack you. But America said, that can't happen to us. It was the last time we were invaded and attacked our own land, Pearl Harbor. But we're like so much superior to that now. And so they attacked us because we were so cocky and so confident that a bunch of people from the Middle East could never hit us hard in any kind of a way that we just said, well, well, we're following them around. Nothing will happen. This is why after 9-11, when George Bush was sitting in the rubble of the building, he stood up and said, they have awoken the sleeping giant. He admitted that we were sleeping. He admitted that we got lazy and cocky and relaxed. The problem with that statement, in my opinion, was that after 9-11, tons of people started flocking into the churches and seeking out God. And what a perfect opportunity for a national leader who is supposedly a Christian to say, let's get on our knees and cry out to God and seek him. He said, they've awoken the sleeping giant. Never again will it happen. We will build ourselves bigger and better and stronger. Wow. So we just met arrogance with arrogance. So the reality is this is what Eglon is doing. Eglon has gotten cocky. He's been oppressing them for 18 years. Israel has been pathetically just paying the tribute to him. The security gets relaxed and... Ehud takes advantage of it. He uses his wit, his intelligence, and his planning to put his sword on his side that he knows that they won't check to get himself into a room with a king that he knows that there will be no security. And all he needs is, I've got a secret message from God. Now notice that he intentionally does not use the name Yahweh. He uses the generic name Elohim, which just means king, sovereign king. Communicating here is he doesn't want to give anything away that he's a, his loyalties are to Yahweh. Now, is Ehud's loyalties a lot Yahweh? Yes, because later he's actually going to use the name Yahweh with his own people. 
That's important to understand because in this time period where they're worshiping other gods, it would not be uncommon for them to actually not be worshiping Yahweh and to use the name Elohim all the time. So Ehud also presents himself as someone who is not covenantly loyal to Yahweh by using the name Elohim. So he says, I got a secret message from Elohim for you, O king. Be quiet, all of his attendants left. Verse 20. When Ehud approached him, he was sitting in the well-ventilated upper room all by himself, which probably mostly means that he's got windows with lattice work to allow the breeze to flow through because this is the ancient world. It's hot. There's no such thing as air conditioning. There's no such thing as like Tyvek wrapping around your house or windows that are double pane. So the reality is you want to build a window on one side and a window on the other side to allow the breeze to go through so you don't sweat to death, which you're probably already going to anyways. I have a message from God. Um, When Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled the sword from his right thigh, and drove it into Eglon's belly. The handle went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade. Basically what he's saying is this guy is so overweight that when he takes a blade that's 18 inches long and shoves in his belly, think about that. That's how thick he is. The blade goes in, and the fat actually closes in around the handle and sucks it in. And Ehud cannot get his sword out. There's nothing to grab onto. When you become very overweight, this is actually very likely. There's actually a doctor who did a medical journal on how this actually can literally work that way. Ehud did not pull the sword out of his belly. As Ehud went out into the vestibule, he closed the doors of the upper room behind him and locked it. Now there's even in the original Hebrew the idea that he lost his bowels. And we don't know whether that means that he just kind of crapped his pants or that his bowels literally came spilling out. Most people believe that's more the crapping part because if the fat's swallowing the sword, it's very unlikely the bowels are going to be pouring out. This is a good thing for Ehud. One of the reasons that God is putting you here is because he wants you to be grossed out by Ehud so that you're horrified by Ehud, so that you have no sympathy for Ehud, the guy who's gotten overweight by oppressing other people and feeding off their lives like a, bunch, like a leech. It's a satire. But the other thing that this is good is, it explains how Ehud can walk out without the guards looking at him being covered in blood. Because if the fat swallowed the blade, then there was no blood splatter. If you hit somebody in the gut like that, there is blood, and it will spray on you. But the fact that the fat is closing itself up immediately upon that means that there's nothing spraying upon Ehud. So Ehud can literally walk out the front doors and then walk right by the guards, and they won't say, hey, wasn't his shirt white previously? (laughs) This is not just a satire comment. It's also strategic. That makes sense how he was able to get out. Because, you know, there's always somebody watching the movie trying to find the loopholes that the director missed. Well, that doesn't make sense. That's inconsistent. He gets out into the vestibule. He closed the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. The idea is he locked the doors, and then he closed them behind him. Now, this does something. Because there's reduced guards, it was not unnatural for a king to hear you and then send you away. Kings did not walk you out to the front door and out to the car and see you on your way. They did not move for you ever. He was staying his thing. It was not uncommon for somebody to leave without the king being present. And he, everything looks normal. Ehud has come and gone multiple times. 
the Eglon invited him in. There's nothing changed about his appearance. We didn't see any weapons on him when he went in. Why would we ever think that anything is wrong? Now, locking the door means that the king doesn't want to be disturbed. It also means it's going to slow them down, which allows Ehud to get away and mobilize an army. Ehud has thought all this through. It's so obvious that he's not just taking this by the seat of his pants. This is planning. When Ehud left, Eglon's servants came and saw the locked doors of the upper room. They said he must be relieving himself. Basically, he's sitting on the toilet going to the bathroom. That's another reason why it's called the breeze room. Because it's like your ceiling fan in your bathroom. If you've got a breeze coming in one window and going out the other, the smell leaves. <laughs> you use what you got when you're in the ancient world. Saw the doors locked, they were relieving himself. They waited so long that they were embarrassed. They were standing there like, oh my gosh, he's still in the bathroom. What is wrong? Is he losing his bowels? They're, they're waiting so long, they're embarrassed that he's still in the bathroom and he hasn't come out. And that's the satire. You're meant to laugh. You're meant to joke and mock him at his expense. Then when they finally try to get in, they can't get in because it's locked from the inside. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and when he passed the carved images, he escaped to Syria. Now this is important because what you have is the ding-dongs of Moab who've been played. They've been shown to be lazy. They've been shown to be dumb. They've been shown to be slow. And while God is kind of playing a satire on them, the man of God who is clever and witty and planning has planned this all out. He's used their, um, their lack of street smarts to their disadvantage. He's gone out. They're waiting. They're not knowing what's going on. He leaves. He passes by the idols, and which means he's now in Israelite territory. And he's mobilizing an army, coming back to defeat Moab. And meanwhile, they're still waiting for their king to get off the toilet. And there is a satire there. And when you get to Elijah, the toilet jokes are going to come back again. See, God's not above potty humor. <laughs> Passing by the idols also shows two things. First, it shows that he's now back in Israelite territory. But it also means this. There is no way you would ever go into battle without first sacrificing to the gods. The only way that you would ever have victory in battle is that the gods are with you. In fact, the Canaanites would sacrifice their children to the gods before they went into battle to ensure victory. So there is no way that you would go into battle without the gods backing you. And remember, the gods don't back you. They don't like you. They don't love you. The only reason they back you is because you feed them first. And if you feed them and make them happy, then they'll give you victory in battle because they know that you're going to feed them again. If you don't feed them and you go into battle, then you're known as somebody who doesn't feed them and they're not going to give you victory in battle. There's no way you're going to pass by the gods. And this is significant because it shows you that he's back in the land of God, but it also shows you that he's not paying tribute to the pagan gods. Because even though he's used the name Elohim, he's showing now that his loyalty is to Yahweh. And that's going to show up again when he then says, when he reached Syria, in verse 27, he blew a trumpet in the Ephraimite hill country, which is in Ephraim, just north of Benjamin. So Benjamin and Ephraim are side by side. So in the Ephraimite hill country, he blows the horn. 
the foothill country, and Ehud in the lead. He said to them, follow me for Yahweh is about to defeat your enemy, the Moabites. He uses the name, the covenantal name of Yahweh, which is absolutely unique to him and him alone. And he gives all glory to Yahweh. And he professes absolute trust that God is going to give him the victory. And that's the faith. Right here, he's showing, I worship Yahweh. I trust him completely for victory and no other God. And I'm going to give him all glory. I'm going to give him all glory. So he said to the enemies of Moabites, they followed him, they captured the fords of the Jordan River opposite of Moab, and they did not let anyone cross. That day they killed about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, capable warriors. Not one escaped. Israel humiliated Moab that day, and the land had rest for 80 years. Ehud again. Now God gives you a little bit more background into how Ehud pulls this plan off, but notice that when it actually comes to the battle, it's short and sweet and not epic. Ehud is another godly judge. Now, some people have tried to argue that Ehud is not a godly judge for two reasons. One, it never says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And two, he used deception to win the war. And God hates deception. The problem with that is, one, Lots of people were told the Spirit of the Lord didn't come upon them in power. Joshua were never told the Spirit of the Lord came upon them in power. Moses. There are lots of people that throughout the stories of the Bible, this seems to be a uniquely thing than judges. It's clear that Moses has it in other people, and so it's clear here. I wouldn't read into that Spirit of the Lord thing, especially when it's so obvious that he's having a victory without any epicness, and he's given glory to God, he's passed by the idols, and he's actually called a deliverer by God in the biblical godly definition of deliverer. So all these things point towards his godliness. The other thing about deception is they know that deception bothers us, but you have to remember, God tells you not to kill people, but he also goes ahead and kills people on his own. God allows certain things for a certain extent. For example, there are many times in the Bible where even God uses deception against his enemies. And we all use deception. Some of you turn your lights on to convince people that you're home in order to scare the bad guys away. Or you put up security signs in your yard and yet you have no security system. We don't think of deception being bad and evil when it comes to protecting ourselves from people who are evil and bad and shown that they don't care about things. Now, I'm not saying that you can go out and lie to people and that's okay, but intentionally lying. Remember, God forbids the deception of people for your own gain and the idea of hurting. The ultimate commandment is love God, love others. And there's not really any way that you can argue that it's unloving to the bad guy to make him think that you're home with your lights on. The command is love others. And if you've been commanded by God to do this, to kill him, then the deception is okay. You have to realize this is a hard thing for us. And I can spend a lot more time on this if you want to talk about this later or something like that, but for the sake of it, we'll move on. But we'll really talk about when we get the kings, because in kings, God is actually going to deceive Ahab himself. It really comes down to this fact. When you set yourself up as someone completely opposed to the law of God and the love of God, 
and you make yourself an enemy of God, then oftentimes God uses the very things that you value to defeat you and destroy you. How is God using deception to bring you to your downfall when you're already a person who uses deception? How is it any different than God using sexual morality in your life to bring you down? We're okay with Romans saying, because they pursued sexual immorality, God gave them over into their sexual desires to destroy them. But somehow we're not okay with them. God saying, because they deceived other people, God deceived them into their destruction. Why is deception wrong to destroy somebody and sexual morality is not? And you have to realize that God uses the things that you use to destroy other people to poetically justice defeat you. Eglon is a kind of person who's oppressed people. He's deceived them. He's, he's done. And God has no problem with using those things against them. And when you make yourself an enemy of God and the God who's above the law, because everything he does is automatically righteous, because the only purpose of the law is because we're selfish. And if he's not selfish, then anything that he does is automatically altruistic, has every right to use deception if he wants, because he's not doing it for a selfish reason. And he can enable his people to do that too if they're following him. There are many passages that talk about God's deception. David even sings in the Psalms, the good old Psalms. And David says, Praise be to the God who deceived my enemies. God is not a nice little cute teddy bear for you to play with. He is way beyond our understanding of our simple black and white morality. And he's way outside of our boxes of comprehension. And because he is the God of the universe that determined everything, he can do whatever he wants. And in this case, God is okay with this deception. I have no right to say whether this deception is okay or not, but God does. And God put this in here, and he lifted Ehud up as an incredible man of God who did things, and that means that God kind of signed off on this. And we're gonna, you see this other places, too, in the Bible. And this is no different than Joshua, who deceived the enemy of Ai by acting like he was running away. And when they followed me, he turned around and attacked them and the people behind him. And we're like, wow, that's really clever. And then you see deception somewhere else, and we're like, that's bad. You have to realize that we've used deception all the time, not in the purpose of lying people to hurt them, but just because you use deception when you're playing chess or Uno or stuff. That's just the way that you, that strategy. And so you have to understand this is strategy, not exactly deception. Now, if Ehud is intentionally lying people to hurt them and to gain power over them, that's different. That's totally different. But he's using it to free Israel from the oppression of an enemy that God has already determined should die. And that's completely different. God's not easily packaged. That doesn't mean you have the right to go out and do all this whenever you want, because ultimately we are to be led by the Spirit of God. Because you and I are completely incapable of determining when this is okay and when it's not. Because what we're really good at is rationalizing anything that we want. And we can make anything sound godly and good only way that you and I can say that we're going to do this is that the Holy Spirit has clearly spoken in our lives to do that in that moment and we're following. And in that case, I would say test the Spirit big time. Not test it, 
but tests to make sure that you actually heard it correctly. Remember, this is all about being led by the Spirit. Don't read the Bible with a very narrow view of what God can and cannot do, but also don't turn that around and go to the extreme and read it as a license that you can do all this stuff whenever you want either. Ultimately, what it comes down is people who are led by the Spirit of God. That's what God wants. That's what he calls for. He delivers them. And he gives them rest for 80 years. Notice that just like the oppression is longer, so is the rest is longer, but the rest is actually longer than the previous rest that Othniel showed. What we have after Ehud came, oh, we're not there yet. Ehud is an intelligent man who used his wit in partnership with God's spirit. God can use anybody, but he also wants us to use our gifts to partner with them. God doesn't want just people who sit on their couch eating bonbons and say, oh, God will do it. I have faith. Yes, God can do anything, and your faith can move mountains, but God also said, join me. Go out and make disciples. Go out and defeat the enemy. Go out and expand the garden. He asks you to join him. He will pick you up and carry you when you're weak, but he will not pick you up and carry you when you're lazy and using excuses. Ehud took his gifts and joined God in his power and defeated the enemy without hesitation. Without hesitation. That's not the end of the second cycle, though. There's one other judge that God is going to mention. And there's one sentence given this guy, and it says, After Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Anath. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat, and like Ehud, he delivered Israel. Now, this sentence is actually cram-packed with a lot of information. First, we're told his name is Shamgar. Shamgar is a Canaanite name. And he's the son of Anath. Anath is the masculine form of Anath. And Anath is the, god, the Canaanite goddess of war, violence, and sex and love. And you would say, wow, those are weird things to put together. Yeah, but what gets more ratings and makes more money in America when you put sex and violence together in movies, right? And so the reality is we may not worship an idol and a god of sex and violence, but we do fork out tons of money to movies that give us sex and violence. This is the goddess of that in the Canaanite mythology. She's also the wife of Baal. And so what's interesting is this guy has a Canaanite name who is the son of a father who is named after a Canaanite goddess. Everything screams Canaanite. We don't know whether this guy is actually a Canaanite or that he's an Israelite who his family was so steeped in Canaanite religion they took on Canaanite names. But if you're being named after a Canaanite goddess that looks a lot like Kali when you read about her, in Hinduism, the tongue out, slaughtering, cutting people's heads and hands off, that's what she does, then chances are you're definitely influenced by the Canaanite religion. The question is, why God used this guy? We're told that his name is Shamgar, his son of Anath. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat. What's an ox goat? An ox goat is a long rod with a fork at the end, like more like those old back scratchers kind of a thing, rather than a pitchfork. And you use it to prod cattle, ox. You goad the ox into moving. We use cattle prods today. 
they use an ox goat, a sharp pointy thing. To, and before you're like, oh, poor cows. They're sticking them in the rear end with a fork. <laughs> you have to remember cowhide is thick. And you've got to really poke them just for them to notice it, let alone to hurt the poor cow. He's using a cattle prod, which means that he's probably not a warrior. He's a farmer. Or he is a warrior, but Israel is so oppressed and the Canaanites are so oppressed by some foreign enemy that they have no weapons and they only can use what they have. Either way, it shows that he's either not trained for this, he's just a farmer, or he's not equipped for fighting a war. God uses him and he kills 600 Philistines. Shamgar is either an Israelite who has become a pagan in his way of thinking, or he's a Canaanite who is also seeing Philistia as an enemy. We're not clear if he killed 600 Philistines all at one moment or over the period of his guerrilla warfare tactics, for all we know. But the reality is what's interesting is it says that he delivered Israel just like Ehud. Which means that even though he's not specifically called a judge, he is called a deliverer like Ehud. Which means that he brought a rest and a deliverance to Israel like Ehud did. Is he coexisting at the same time as Ehud in a different part? Or is he after Ehud? We don't know. But here's the question. We're not told that he worshipped Yahweh. We're not told that he called on the name of Yahweh. We're not told that the Holy Spirit came on. There is nothing here that gives any hint that he's obedient to Yahweh. And when you are obedient to Yahweh, God goes out of his way to make it clear. So the implication is this guy actually isn't worshiping Yahweh. And the question is, why is he here then? God can use anyone. You think that God wants to use the church, and that's true. But we oftentimes think that therefore God can only use the believers. But God can use whoever he wants. Because all of creation belongs to to him and everyone is his creation and everyone is his child and he makes it very clear that he raises up kings when we get to the prophets he's going to make it very clear that I here's another thing there's another time that's anointed he says I've anointed Cyrus to be my instrument of salvation to the people if you know anything about Cyrus he was a jacked up evil pagan man he was way better than any of the kings that came to him morally, but he was still messed up. God calls him his anointed and his deliverer. Now you have an unconventional man, a farmer, who's not an Israelite or at least a pagan Canaanite, who is using an unconventional weapon and God can use him. And the point is God can use anybody. And God's making that very clear because Shamgar is going to set the stage for a few other unconventional people with unconventional weapons. So God wants to show you that he can use unconventional people with unconventional weapons so that you'll get used to this new pattern that's going to be established in the book of Judges. The other point that might be being made is perhaps there is no godly Israelite for God to use. There is a place in the prophets where God says, where have all the godly men gone? And then he turns to pagan people to accomplish his purposes and will. 
And so it could be. That doesn't mean that there's no godly people that will ever come after Shamgar. But at this current point in Israel's history, God looked around and there was nobody godly for him to use. So he went to a pagan Canaanite and used an unconventional man with an unconventional weapon. Because even though he prefers to use his people, he is not restricted and limited to only his people. And that's important to understand. Because if the church won't go out and do the things that God wants, then he will raise up other people like Greenpeace or Peace Corps and Greenpeace and PETA and all these organizations that we look at in disdain because they're liberals. But at the same time, they're doing things that we were supposed to do. We are supposed to be leading America and taking care of the environment. We're supposed to be leading America and taking care of animals and and taking care of people and welfare and and providing that kind of stuff. And yet a lot of non-Christians are the ones doing it, and the Christians are content to just bang their morality drum. At the same time, they don't really go out and do action. Now, I'm not saying that no Christian goes out and does action, but over a long period of America's history, Republicans have been known for having a higher sense of absolute truth than an active participation in social justice activities. And guess the liberals' absolute morality may not quite be there, but they are doing a lot of things for people and that kind of stuff. And so the reality is one of the reasons that America has gotten so bad is because the church was content to relinquish a lot of our responsibilities to the government and to just be content with Bible studies. Now, I'm all for Bible studies, <laughs> but there also needs to be action there. And so you need to understand as much as you may not like certain organizations, and yet certain organizations have gone kind of ungodly with what they've done, and yes, they're hugging the tree a little too much or something like that, the reality is if we had been there demonstrating what it looks like, maybe we wouldn't have gotten so extreme and so corrupted. God can use anybody and will use anybody when his people are not available to answer the call. And that's the point that Shamgar is making. That's the point that Shamgar is making. That's the end of the good judges. That's the end. Now we're going to go downhill. 